Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to What's the Res, an ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring. I'm a humanities instructor and debate coach at Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by an old friend. Uh, In fact, a friend who taught me how to debate. Nathan Orlando and I go way back to freshman year at Hillsdale College. My senior year, Nathan was co-captain of the Hillsdale College debate team with a guy named Will Cooney. And uh, in our last semester, really our last year, uh, the coaches cooked up a scheme where uh, all of us people on the IE side or the speech side of things would cross over and be novice debaters. And some of the, many of the debaters would cross over and be novice speech people. And if we did this right, we could game the system and tiny little Hillsdale College could win the sweepstakes tournament at Pi Kappa Delta. Well, Nathan taught me the basics. He taught me how to do parley and IPDA and how to flow the round, all kinds of fun things. And we ended up winning the tournament. So it was pretty successful. Since then, Nathan's gone on to pursue a PhD in international relations at, from Baylor University. He's currently a fellow in international politics, teaching at St. Vincent College in Pennsylvania. Today, he's going to lend us his expertise and political analysis and thinking about the NSDA Nationals LD resolution. Nathan, welcome to What's the Res? Thank you very much, Josh. And for the record, uh, if any of you guys have any problems with Josh, that, that's my fault, so I'll take play. <laughs> well, I... Uh, uh, for, for I, you know, you taught me how to flow, and since then I, I use flowing kind of all the time in any heavy note taking situation. But I cannot get my students to really see the value of taking notes in really close columns. Any any suggestions for why flowing around is really vital? Well, keeping everything together on the same sheet of paper allows you to see the round, not just the individual parts, but the vision, the movements, the strategy. Um, and keeping it all together really helps. At the end of the day, I mean, you shouldn't be up there reading your notes, but you should be able to see rhythms, patterns, that kind of thing. And if you need to jog your memory, I mean, that's really helpful too. Writing it down is supposed to be one of the best ways to retain information. Though this is something I have trouble with with my students in college as well, so I sympathize. What? You mean they don't just love taking notes? Um, yeah, something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that that sadly is not just a college thing. I uh, when I taught middle school, I insisted they jot down all the notes that were on the board, and it usually took about nine, twelve, sometimes the first fifteen weeks for students to really realize, oh, he's serious about that. He meant for me to write those notes down. Well, uh, Nathan, where are you now? What's t- catch me up on your journey over the past eight years? Can you believe it's been eight years since we graduated? I feel old. Uh, I do too, a little bit. But where where are you now? What are you doing? Where where have you gone since being captain of the debate team? So I am currently in lovely Latrobe, Pennsylvania, which is in some ways the birthplace of Western civilization. Oh, uh, home of Mister Rogers and Arnold Palmer, the Banana Split, Rolling Rock Brewery, <laughs> but most importantly, uh, Saint Vincent College, which is where I'm working right now. Uh, I'm a fellow in international politics, uh, teaching international politics and comparative politics here. Uh, this is my first year here. Uh, I spent the past five years in Texas working on my PhD at Baylor University. Uh, so now I'm back to getting used to winters once again. Is, is it hard to adjust? I mean, I, I hear Texas is pretty hot. Texas is a little on the hot side, yes. But <laughs> uh, it snows like once a year, if that. Uh, so that part was okay. All right. Well, 
now I, I know you're, uh, you said international politics a moment ago. Am I wrong in thinking that your focus is on international relations? Is it actually international politics? Are those the same thing? More or less the same thing. Uh, Baylor, they called it international relations. Here they call it international politics, but uh, tomato, tomato. Okay. Well, in that case, what exactly is that? I mean, is that just the, the world section on the BBC website news? Or what, what, what exactly is encompassed in the idea of international relations or international politics? Well, I mean, it's partially that, uh, the BBC news section. Um but at the same time, I like to think, and this is perhaps you know patting myself on the back a little bit, that it's the capstone of politics in some ways. Our Aristotle says that politics is you know that science or art, depending on which translation you use, uh, that sort of involves every other study. And international politics is that happening in multiple places. Um, it's the way in which nations get along, and not just nations, uh, but also people, uh, organizations. Uh, militaries, diplomats, economies, uh, how they overcome their differences, solve their problems, or in some cases don't solve their problems. So it really involves, it sounds like it involves really everything else. I mean, that, that's going to involve a decent amount of psychology, a decent amount of economics. I'm sure that involves at least a passing glance at history and literature and culture and really everything else that people study. Is that, is that right? Well, uh, I guess you could put it that way. I wouldn't, but uh, sure, you're welcome to. Um, yeah, I tell my students that nothing is off the table. Huh? I remember at one point I was uh, I emailed uh, Dr. Jackson back at Hillsdale to ask him uh, what I should get a, a PhD in. And, of course, like every professor, he told me to get a PhD in what he got his PhD in, English. <laughs> and uh, I asked him why. And he said, oh, because English is the queen of the liberal arts. And it... It sounds like, in a way, a bit more practically focused, but it almost sounds like you could make a case for uh, international relations being something like a queen of, of sciences in its own right, or at least bringing a lot of different subjects together. It certainly does. Uh, I don't know about uh, queens. We're sort of an anti-monarchical moment uh, in this point of history, but uh, yeah, it's important. All right. Well, I guess I, I, you, you avoided my clever trap to try and get you to admit <laughs> that we should go back to a, uh, an absolute monarchy. I you know we've been tossing that question around for, for years, so we won't get there today then. Well, do help us a little bit with, uh, with, with where you are in, the, in your research. I know, are you if I remember correctly, you've written most, if not all, of your dissertation. And uh, do you perhaps have an elevator pitch version of your dissertation for us? You just help us know what your research is in. So I study French people, oh. uh, specifically during the Cold War. And I'm working on this one guy. His name is uh, Raymond Aron. Um, and here, here's sort of your uh, introduction to Aron. Uh, he was a philosophy student at the top school in France. Um, and he was roommates with uh, Jean-Paul Sartre uh, and actually beat Sartre out in the uh, final examination. And he goes on to study in uh, Germany. Uh, and this ends with him in the early 1930s uh, teaching philosophy in Berlin. Uh, for those of you guys who know your history, he's there 1930 to 1933. Uh, he's on hand witnessing speeches by guys like uh, Himmler and even Hitler. Uh, and it's important to note at this point that uh, Aron is also a Jew. So he's witnessing these speeches, and he has some political connections. So he comes back home one winter and sets up a meeting with the deputy prime minister, uh, deputy foreign minister of France, excuse me, 
And so he lays out the situation. He gives a very long lecture about how dangerous these Nazi people are, whatever that means at the time, and how something should, you know, uh, something's going really wrong. And the deputy foreign minister uh, listens very patiently and he responds, well, that's uh, very interesting and I agree with you, it's a problem. Now, what do you recommend that I tell the foreign minister to do about it? And this sort of takes out on him back. He's a philosopher. Uh, you know, what, what is this doing thing that we talk about? Uh, and this sort of haunts him for the rest of his days. Okay, you can understand a situation, but what do we do about it? So I follow him over the course of the next 50 years of his career uh, as he sort of encounters this problem of politics. Once the understanding is done, what is there to be done? What is the practical application? Uh, and I track his career through five different conversations with uh, much more well-known interlocutors, such as Sartre, uh, Camus, uh, Hayek, uh, Henry Kissinger, hmm. uh, and Charles de Gaulle, uh, through the various crises that France and the West face uh, across the course of the Cold War. The reason I, uh, I reached out to you is I thought your, your dissertation topic and your area of study seems to line up really well with the NSDA-LD Nationals Resolution, uh, which reads... Uh, resolved. Violent revolution is a just response to political oppression. What are your thoughts about this resolution? Well, there's a lot going on. <laughs> um, and that's perhaps putting it mildly. Uh, I had the chance to listen to a little bit of uh, your previous podcast, and it sounded like you guys went for the right issues. Uh, so good work. Thank you. Um, which course, you are, <laughs> you know what's going on here better than I do in terms of what the uh, circuit is looking for. But at least from where I'm sitting, uh, there's a few things that stick out to me. Uh, as you said last time, uh, a lot of the debate is going to come down to the definition of words. In particular, I highlighted uh, just and oppression. Hmm. Um, but also this is word. Uh, so that would be a third one that it's important to highlight is not because of what is says, but because of what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that we should commit ourselves to violent revolution. Uh, it's merely affirming a condition of being. And so we're evaluating things. And I, I think, again, the, it's going to function around these two definitions of just and oppression. Justice first. Um, as you guys pointed out last time, what is the meaning of justice? Well, that's going to vary from author to author. You have your two basic types, I guess. You have sort of your uh, Plato from the Republic, uh, justice is to each his due, or your John Rawls sort of uh, distributive justice. And none of this is to suggest, uh, saying that there are two different broad definitions, it's not to suggest that justice is a made-up concept, but uh, at least to my mind, the round is going to function around how you define it. Uh, which of these two paths you go down. Now, the other thing that strikes me immediately is this idea of oppression. Oppression is a lot fuzzier of a topic um, because the adjective both limits and it also in a certain way explodes the ground. Like, what is oppression? Okay, so I'm a university professor. Uh, I can't buy a Lamborghini. I'd love to buy a Lamborghini, but I can't buy a Lamborghini. Uh, and I go to the Lamborghini dealer and say, hey, can I have a Lamborghini, please? And he says, no. <laughs> Is this oppression? Well, I mean, to most reasonable people, no, that's not oppression. Um, and it's also a political oppression. And I think that's kind of important, too. 
I mean, the more I study of politics, the more I realize that, you know, just about everything is politics. But it's important that it's not personal. It's just not it's not just about my personal plight of not being able to afford a Lamborghini. Unless, of course, you know, this is a systemic problem. So perhaps another example to sort of illustrate what I'm talking about, I, I uh, work with a bunch of monks, uh, Benedictine monks here, uh, and they have a sort of political order about them. There's over 100 of them living together, and they take vows of obedience and poverty and chastity. Uh, is this oppression? Like, they're not allowed to own things. Well, they certainly don't seem to think so. But if I were not allowed to own things, yeah, I, I would say that that's kind of oppression there. Um, so what I'm getting at is that oppression has a certain personal element about it, uh, a certain feeling. Don't tell my students that I'm talking about our feelings, but you have to <laughs> feel that you're being oppressed in order to actually be oppressed. Uh, and it sort of has to be out of your control as well. Uh, so those are some initial thoughts on the subject. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I appreciate you focusing in on those areas. I want to ask one follow-up question about the, the verb is, and I, mm-hmm. I, I love hearing other people's takes on these because I, I love it whenever I, uh, I've read something and I think I understand it, then I talk with it, talk with somebody else about it, like, oh, there's so much more there that I didn't even pick up. I didn't focus at all on the verb is. Does the verb is, you said it talks about a state of being, does it limit us to the present tense? Does it limit AF to a present political oppression and a present violent revolution? Or is there a way, does AF still have access to past oppressions and past violent revolutions and potential future oppressions and potential future revolutions? Now, I'm not an expert on grammar, uh, so I would encourage you to go out and look up. And, no, I'm serious. Uh, look up in the dictionary the definition of is. Uh, tell your friends, kids, that this is what you're doing in your spare time. Um, in a certain way, yeah, it does certainly suggest uh, the present tense that in the status quo, if you look around you and you see political oppression, Violent revolution is or, you know, can be in the future, you know, the near, near future, uh, a just response. Um, it might also suggest sort of like this uh, timeless present uh, hmm. in sort of a philosophical way of looking at things uh, that, uh, as Rawls would say, justice is fairness. We're not talking about a specific time, but sort of a broad uh, statement of fact. Okay, so there's there's still plenty of ground there to move around, but there might be something there. But uh, that that actually sounds like a fascinating exercise. I as we're coming to the end of the school year, I, I may be I may have to pull on that definition of is assignment for my logic students, and if so, I'll be sure to give you credit for inspiring <laughs> that extra assignment that's beyond the scope of the syllabus. You um, also give credit to Bill Clinton. Oh um, yes, yes. That's a question before I did. Well, now that we've uh, we've credited Simone de Beauvoir and Bill Clinton in this episode, we're <laughs> I probably won't necessarily recommend Thanks, this one to my middle school fun. students. <laughs> Well, okay. Uh, let's move to a different question then. Uh, now, and this is where I'd love to pull on your, your thoughts philosophically and, and morally, um, which I think is quite fun because once upon a time, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, we managed to survive Philosophy 105 together. Uh, and, and you were much more naturally gifted in that area than I was, but uh, you've gone on to read a lot more philosophy than I have. With all that being said, Philosophically and morally, what's the difference between violent and nonviolent revolution? Why is this something that really draws a lot of other philosophical and moral issues into the conversation? 
Well, first of all, don't sell yourself short there. Uh, I fondly, fondly recall that class. But second of all... Um, chairness. It's all about chairness. <laughs> I, I don't quite know that I uh, follow your meaning with the question. Uh, I wonder if you could say more. Sure. Well, I mean, I guess I'm really getting at the, uh, the, the resolution has this adjective violent revolution. And it's framed in high school LD uh, every... September is when the season begins. The novice revolution focuses on civil disobedience. The novice revolution that every LD debater has started with for, I don't know how many years, but several years, they all begin with the same resolution. Resolved, civil disobedience is morally just in a democracy. Or it flips those last two clauses. Civil disobedience in a democracy is morally justified. Okay. Well, and so it seems to me that there's something there between, in the contrast there, where if we set violent revolution, which the mainstream philosophical tradition seems pretty heavily opposed to. I mean, I, I can't find Aquinas endorsing violent revolution. It's, it's, I don't know of anywhere in Immanuel Kant where he says, oh yes, this is the time. The categorical imperative demands that you pick up your bayonet and stab your neighbor because justice. That doesn't really seem to happen. So I'm curious, like, what morally is the difference between a nonviolent revolution, a nonviolent quest for change, versus a violent quest for change? Does that does that help explain what I'm what I'm think uh, is what I'm trying to ask there at all? I think so. Um, when you when you said that originally, I was thinking that you were looking for the moral distinction between like killing people and not killing people, <laughs> and this is going to be a very very long conversation. Uh, but I think I understand what you mean because the foundation of any political regime or the refoundation in certain cases is very important. It kind of sets the tone for everything to follow. Uh, so I think, of course, you know, if uh, one can go through a nonviolent revolution rather than a violent revolution, uh, you're going to have very different outcomes. Everybody's going to choose nonviolence if they can. One, because we're lazy, and two, because there's not as many moral uh, quandaries about it. Um, but at the same time, I mean, there'll probably be certain people who do think that violence is necessary when nonviolence will solve the when nonviolence does not address the full problem or does not address it as well. I mean, the uh, go-to example here is Karl Marx. He says, we need bloody revolution. Why? Well, because there's a difference between the base and the superstructure, and we have to tear it all down. We can't just have one of these electoral revolutions because that's no revolution at all. Uh, so in a certain way, violent revolution uh, clears the path. Uh, allows one to tear down what is old and inefficient and contrary and start fresh in uh, sort of this fresh start uh, in all things might be appealing to some people. That's really interesting. Cause that, that certainly is, I mean, that takes me back to uh, the French revolution in a lot of ways. Cause that certainly was, that was the goal for a lot of the revolutionaries. I mean, they, it's almost like a, a metaphor of clearing brush where they had to clear away all the, the old growth that had happened. And in their revolution, it's like they're clearing the field and now they're planting new crops and they're expecting something, a new plant to grow up and a better plant than what was in the field the previous year. Absolutely. Um, this was just in the news recently uh, with the uh, Notre Dame fire uh, that they took the uh, cathedral and they rededicated to like the 
goddess of enlightenment and like trees or something. Uh, what? That I missed that. Catholic church. Uh, you had to tear everything down. Well, they didn't tear down the brick and mortar, but they rededicated it. Uh, Wait, are we talking present day France or is this back during the French Revolution? This was during the French Revolution. Oh, okay, okay. I'm sorry. I was freaking out thinking, oh my goodness, they didn't do that today. But okay, yes, yes. Back with the revolutionaries. Not yet. (laughs) No, keep going, keep going. So yeah, they dedicate that to the goddess of reason, I think. I mean, that's something like that. Um, that you can't have these old structures, old institutions, and even perhaps old morality. Uh, if you had Blake Faulkner talking here on an earlier episode, uh, he was going to talk to you about some Nietzsche, where you have the transvaluation of all uh, values. You tear down those old structures of morality, getting back to your original question, uh, and you rethink everything. And this is how you truly have the revolution, where it's not just sort of this electoral revolution of swapping out Barack Obama for Donald Trump or Donald Trump for Joe Biden or whatever. Uh, you actually redo the regime. You refound it on a different sense and uh, pointed on a different path. So if there's not that different sense, if I'm understanding you correctly, and you would say that if it doesn't have that different sense, it's not truly revolutionary. <laughs> Well, it depends who you ask about that. I think uh, for your audience's sake, uh, there's going to be – you can make the argument both ways depending on whose definition you appeal to. But if you want like the truest, boldest sense of revolution, then yeah, you got to tear everything down. you got to start you know, changing out the hearts and minds. This is the idea of Plato's Republic. You kick the poets and the philosophers and anybody that you don't like out of the city and basically everybody over, what is it, the age of 10? Uh, Because you really do have to start fresh, till the new fields. Oh, yeah. uh, And I I remember the uh, last time I taught Sections of the Republic, we focused in on the discussion of the noble lie and the the importance for Plato's whole system of the Republic of really that first generation telling the next generation this good lie – this deception that is for the good of the state, that this is the way it has to be and it can't change. And you are in your fixed position in the Republic, whether gold, silver, bronze, or iron, and you're in your caste for the good of all. And it's it's a lie. It's a system. It's a construct. But within that construct, you're supposed to be happy, or at least you're supposed to function well. Absolutely. Uh, if you don't know anything outside of the regime, you can't question it. Um, Minor, minor spoiler alert. Everybody skip forward 30 seconds if you haven't seen Endgame. <laughs> Wait for a second. Okay. Uh, I'll leave Thanos all those this very well. He says, I'm going to kill everybody. And we're just going to start fresh because everybody else has these bad ideas and they're going to be ungrateful. So if we just start fresh, then nobody will be unhappy. Uh, just kill everybody. Yeah, as 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 an unrelated, just continue the unrelated side note, and the well, well, I'll give a warning when we're done with in game, so that uh, anyone who listens, I'll be able to tag in the outline. But uh, I I thought that was one of the most interesting parts of the whole movie, where at, because in the in Infinity Wars, there was something still a little bit likable about Thanos, in the sense that I was like, okay. It's plausible. I can at least get behind your Malthusian logic of overpopulation and limited resources. And, and, but what happened in, in Endgame, once he gets this future knowledge, right? They're, they're very careful to give him that knowledge of what happened in his first go-around. Well, and then I was expecting him to have some sort of moment like, oh, crud, my plan didn't work. Maybe I'm done. Instead, he jettisons 
anything that left that is morally redeemable. And now the struggle becomes being versus non-being. <laughs> I didn't care for that part. I just thought it handled the uh, the noble lie aspect very well, or at least uh, what we're talking about with the truly revolutionary aspect. Huh. I think they completely destroyed the character and his motivations. Like, okay, he's an unrepentant, as you point out, he's an unrepentant Malthusian. Uh, and every generation has them for whatever reason. Thomas Malthus has been proven wrong so many times, oh but so we always have those Malthusians out there. So like, okay, I can get behind this, but yeah, they completely destroyed his character motivations in the, uh, what is the fourth one? Well, it's, that's true. And I wonder if it matters that in order to do that, they went back before he kills his own daughter out of his, to really achieve his goal. Cause that's the, that's the Thanos that really like the heart of Thanos, the conqueror kind of part of his story arc. It's not that deeper Thanos who has truly sacrificed for his goal and sacrificed something he actually loves. This is a Thanos who really skips that. And in skipping that, I think it, I wonder if that, that might be part of that change. Or maybe that's just too deep and the Marvel Cinematic Universe doesn't actually allow for that much character depth. I don't know. I mean, either of those things could be. Um, the research that I've been doing on that. I've been very interested in this question. Why are people still Malthusians? Uh, in the comics, apparently, he's very uh, hesitant about this whole thing, and he's almost kind of happy when he gets defeated. Uh, and in the third movie, you certainly see an aspect of this. He's sort of resigned and, you know, oh, look at this burden that I have to take upon myself. I'm the tragic hero of all this. Yes, I'm killing half of all life everywhere, but I am the tragic hero. Uh, <laughs> but you don't get that in the fourth movie. He's no, just sort of no. this, uh, he, he's this moral crusader, a uh, moral monster even, even though I don't think there's really anything moral about what he's doing. Yeah, but there, there's, uh, and it, it certainly sets up that, that moment, my favorite moment in the whole movie. Yes, we're talking about Endgame. Nathan set up a, <laughs> uh, a spoiler alert before we got into it. I know, but you guys are all over the place, just so you know. You're on the podcast, just so you know. We're recording this. I'm not deleting it. <laughs> This is my wife, Jennifer Herring, for anyone listening. She's, she's over listening in the conversation. She's about to join in. This sounds like Welcome, a, Hello. This sounds like a fascinating conversation between friends who haven't talked in a while. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, theoretically, I do have an outline, so we will get back to our outline here in a moment. But yeah, We can always edit this out later. Uh, yeah, but we're not going to. This is, this is podcast gold, I think. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but one of the things I loved about that, that movie, and I think it's in part because they set it up where by the end you have Thanos fighting again, you have Thanos fighting, um, Captain America, the Hulk and Iron Man and the three, oh no. And there's Thor in there as well in that battle. So you've got these four heroes, four Avengers going up against Thanos and Thanos doesn't really have the magic glove yet at that moment. They can't defeat him, and it looks like everything is lost. And then suddenly Doctor Strange's yellow circles appear out of nowhere. And then you get this beautiful, uh, what, what Tolkien would call the Eucharistic, or not Eucharistic, the eucatastrophic um, uh, turn, where you have the, the good catastrophe, where suddenly, and then all the dead heroes from the previous movie come forward, and we have a unified battle to wipe out the evil that has been threatening li all life. It was, just, it was a great, I love the climax of the movie. I thought it was a little bit too much. <sighs> Some of these people I look at and why are you there? What are you, what, 
Like, okay, I get that we have to get everyone on our payroll onto the screen right now. So I'm surprised <laughs> that, like, the camera guy didn't walk out there with, you know, some nunchucks and Joss Whedon is in there with his samurai sword and, you know, whoever else will get Batman out there. Why not? Um, it was, uh, I, I get it. Like, you have to have the crowd pleasing moment. It was just a little too much. Like, the tension that was there, like, I thought all the heroes were going to die. I, I, was, I was on board and then too much. Well, you're a better movie critic than I am. Let's. Um, oh, and on your on your Malthus point, though, I am totally with you. And if you ever end up writing on that, I want you to send me your paper because uh, I have a theory about that. And tell me what you think of this, and then we'll get back to our actual point in this episode and getting back to the NSTA resolution. But the uh, I think for years we have so oversold the looming ecological catastrophe of global warming that in middle school and high school science curriculums particularly, the underlying subtext of ecological change and global warming is that overpopulation is the threat that propels global warming. And therefore, the impression that it leaves on students is that we need less people. So that and but in reality, this this actually just came up in one of our uh, our senior thesis presentations. A student claimed that we have this overpopulation threat. The data does not support that. Instead, we're looking at the opposite results spread across Japan, Western Europe, and now throughout North America, where we actually have plateaued and declining birth rates throughout the world. We're not facing an overpopulation crisis. We're running out of people because we're not having enough babies. And I wonder if part of the rationale, part of this is part of the effect of the global warming narrative that has become such a dominant piece of uh, scientific education in K-12. Well, uh, you're in a better situation to address that question than I am. Uh, I'm a scientist, but a political scientist, so I don't know the numbers uh, or anything in that uh, area. Um I know only enough to know that, uh, yes, at least in uh, parts of the world, the population is declining, or at least uh, the birth rate is not uh, at replacement levels. Uh, We talked about France earlier. That's particularly there. Like People have lost the art of, uh, how do we say, making babies. Uh, Just forgot. And I do know that um, in certain areas, what's been pointed to as the cause of global warming, stuff like... uh, Cows producing methane is much more of a problem than, you know, the people themselves. Um, But what you say sounds plausible. I just don't know. And I will freely admit this is purely a pet theory. I have zero qualifications or entitlements to this theory. I'm a humanities guy who's reading Aeschylus and at least thinking about problems of the contemporary world. Speaking of, let's get back to the problems of the contemporary world. All right. (laughs) So uh, now in if you listen to much to our, our previous episode, you may have gotten toward later in the episode, I listed five big name revolutions that I'm familiar with to a minor degree. French Revolution, American Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, the Iranian Revolution as big name uh, revolutions that I think people prepping this resolution ought to be familiar with and places they might go to for evidence for to support their contentions. Well, based on your studies, are there other relevant revolutions? Or, and if not, what, 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 where, where would you point us to uh, places that debaters should consider to look for practical uh, efforts in revolutionary aims or results of revolutions? 
a few that I'll point you towards. I think the, the fundamental revolution for this uh, question is going to be the one in the, uh, America in the 1960s. You have the clear contrast, which I think what this resolution is trying to get at, between Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Nonviolent revolution versus violent revolution. And I'm not really in a position to weigh in and say which one is right, which one is wrong, but you do have the clear articulation of what violence will gain you and what it will not gain you in their writings. Uh, so that's the first place that I would encourage your listeners to take a look at. Um, the Bolshevik Revolution, I think, is also going to be very much key. Uh, not only Karl Marx's writings, but also Lenin and Trotsky are very much weighing in on this question of why do we need to be violent? What is just about this? Well, the entire idea of justice in Russia, in Tsarist Russia, is sort of propagated by the regime itself. And so you need to destroy the regime, including its idea of justice, in order to actually get at uh, the fundamental basics of political life. Uh, on a similar note, uh, the Chinese Revolution, which is playing out in the early 1900s, uh, finally culminates in 19, well, in some ways, I guess that's still going on, but Mao declares victory in 1949 mm. uh, by ousting Chiang Kai-shek, and they all retreat to uh, Taipei slash Taiwan. And Mao puts forward this idea of continuous revolution that this is the extension of the Bolshevik project, that even once the regime is established, we must continue the revolution. This is why you have the Great Leap Forward on uh, the Cultural Revolution. Uh, these are how we come to be a modernized country. And yes, 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 there was an unsightly death toll and, you know, some 30 to 60 million people here or there uh, died. But this ends up making China into the economic powerhouse that it is today. And if you look at a lot of the polls and surveys, uh, many of the Chinese people, well, at least the ones who survived or their ancestors survived, say, well, this was kind of necessary. Uh, put us back on the map. Um the interesting ones that uh, perhaps your readers are a little bit less familiar with, uh, 1956 uh, in Budapest, uh, the Hungarians rose up against the Soviet rule. They said, you know, what are you guys doing here? Uh, and it was a little violent on their side, and Khrushchev had two choices. Uh, either he could accept Hungary splitting away or no, and he chose the latter, and it was very, very brutal. Uh, so that was a revolution that did not quite work out, uh, and, well, more is the pity for them. Uh, the other one that comes to mind as a contrast or foil with uh, the American Revolution is the Indian Revolution uh, against British rule. And this was uh, led by uh, Gandhi. Um, this was very much of a nonviolent revolution, uh, aimed very much at the same ends. And ultimately, it's uh, argued out uh, through mass demonstrations and literature that turn British principles back against the empire. Okay, you guys believe in freedom and individual rights and uh, the independence of the nation state. Well, time to pay up. And ultimately it's successful uh, without the same degree of uh, conflict that was in the American Revolution. Now, the interesting one that I'm sure, well, that I, I suspect that your readers have not heard of is the Algerian Revolution. Uh, and this is, uh, this goes back to my dissertation and back to our earlier subject of Camus. 
Uh, Camus was born in French Algeria. He was a Frenchman, uh, but uh, he lived in Algeria for most of his life up until about World War II time. And this was the conflict that nobody studies and nobody talks about, even though this collapsed uh, the French regime. Not the Algerian regime, it collapsed the French regimes. This was the end of the Fourth Republic and the start of the Fifth Republic uh, because this was the last holdout of the French Empire and we're going to plant our flag here and we'll keep you as part of the French Empire and it didn't work out so well. Uh, the National Liberation Front uh, is sort of trying to start Algeria on the path to a national unity that they didn't really have this history of being a nation state. They were part of the Ottoman Empire up until uh, the certain point at which the French kind of annexed them. And uh, there's terrorist action on both sides. Uh, the French left, especially like Jean-Paul Sartre, are openly advocating that you know, French soldiers desert uh, and decrying the degree of torture and you know, bad practices that the French army is uh, instigating. But uh, the rebels are not really, uh, don't really have the moral high ground themselves. And this is, so this is violent revolution on both sides. Uh, and as my guy, uh, Raymond Rome points out, this is a weird instance of both sides fighting against their own interest. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, France is throwing a lot of money at the modernization of the Algerian economy, a lot of money, enough to destabilize the economy. And the Algerians want independence knowing that the French funds will be cut off. At the same time, it would be much in the economic interest of France to just cut their ties. Like, we're done here, we're pulling out, which is eventually what they did. But they're fighting to keep on throwing all this money at Algeria. So besides the humanitarian cost, which was exorbitant, uh, it was an economic loss for both sides. So those are the examples that came to mind. Nathan, it sounds like there have been a lot of revolutions over the 20th century. Uh, is there any particular reason why the 20th century has so many revolutions? Well, that's a wonderful question. I have multiple guesses. Uh, I don't know that there's quite uh, a definitive answer, but it's a huge time of upheaval in international politics. I mean, the number of nation states which are party to the signing of the UN was, what, 50 or so? Uh, today, you're up to 193 UN members. So that's almost a, you know, uh, quadrupling of the number of nation states. And most of these are not formed through peaceful signing of treaties. Uh, perhaps like uh, Czechoslovakia became the Czech Republic and the Soviet Union in what's called the Velvet Revolution. They signed a treaty and that was it. But for the most part, there's been a few guns involved. At the same time, you have this weird polarization of military conflicts. Because, of course, you have the development of the atomic bomb. With the development of the atomic bomb and uh, the emerging two superpowers of the world, it would seem that these two guys, much like Athens and Sparta, uh, way back in the day, should have control over everything. But the atomic bomb has not been used in combat since 1945. So at the same time as you have the rise of the atomic bomb, you have the rise of the machine gun, the rebel, the guerrilla fighter. 
uh, who's the guy conducting these revolutions. And there's, I guess, an art form, I guess you would say, to conducting this revolution without uh, attempting the use of the atomic bomb. Um, in fact, I will go far, so far as to say an art form. Uh, there's a book on it. Uh, Mao Zedong quite literally wrote the book on guerrilla warfare. It's called On Guerrilla Warfare. Oh, um, all right. Yeah, and so you almost have to have, in order for these nation states to split off and go their own way, uh, at the same time do so against powers that are much bigger and stronger, you have different types of revolution being concocted. Uh, but in a certain way, nationalism and national independence have also been the buzzwords of the 20th century. So uh, these are all partial hypotheses. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. The 20th century did contain a couple revolutions. Well, as you were describing that, I got kind of focused on the, the technological capacities that, that modern progress has created. Is it, would, would affirmative be in a good position to say that part of the philosophical tradition's general disdain for political revolutions has more to do with a lack of technological possibility of successful revolt. I mean, does the I mean, as as the twentieth century develops more technological capacity for violent revolution, does that then mean that well, we actually would have seen this same level of revolution in previous centuries if they had had the means for revolution? Part of it, yes, I think you have to have uh, that technological, uh, at least tip of the hat to technology. You're not going to revolt against the Roman rule unless you have a couple spears of your own, because the Roman legion does not have the reputation for playing with the kid gloves on. They're going to come in there and they will rock your world and erase your name from the history books. You have to have the means to fight back. Otherwise, you're just kind of throwing your life away. So I think, yeah, the technological revolution, the availability of firearms, the development of guerrilla tactics certainly has a lot to do, especially with the violent aspect of revolutions. But at the same time, you also have sort of this philosophical aspect. And remind me, uh, with this prompt, we should come back to uh, Thomas Hobbes and what he'd have to say about this. But this jumping forward a little bit from Hobbes, uh, the 20th century is the time of individual rights. Basically, from the Enlightenment on forward, you have this idea of individual rights uh, and these things which cannot be taken away from the individual. And if the individual is deprived of these, then this is an injustice. This understanding, and especially its proliferation into what was called the third world at the time, sort of encourages revolutions for one reason or another. I mentioned the Indian Revolution earlier where they're taking British principles, such as individual rights, and throwing them back in the British face. Uh, okay, if you guys believe in these so much, then you know why, why don't we get them as well? The British had to say, well, that's a pretty good point, I have to say. There's a similar thread that I don't know if it was really there in the history. I tend to think it was not, but it uh, shows up in Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton uh, musical, where uh, you have a, he has a couple of the female characters sing a line about, and uh, uh, when I meet Thomas Jefferson, I'll tell him to include women in the sequel to the Declaration of Independence, and and where uh, there's a there's a nod to contemporary views of Jefferson in uh, having Jefferson interact with Sally, his uh, slave, as soon as he comes in, that kind of points to some of those same kind of inconsistencies, and where today we would say it's really hard for people to conceptualize 
how on earth could the Founding Fathers advocate for human rights in this foundational way while not seeing the inequities that are at the basis of the American economy in terms of slavery and, and freedom? I think it's absolutely fascinating that as those things spread, it becomes kind of a, it becomes part of the matrix out of which these revolutions are springing. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned earlier that uh, political oppression was going to be one of the key ideas in this debate. I want to see if we can go back to that. Could you walk us through some of the current political oppressions that exist in the world? And then at least, and this is purely your opinion, but what level of oppression, in your view, would be necessary to justify violent revolution? Oh, wow. Okay, small questions there. Um, okay. So the political oppression that I see in parts of the world would be sort of ideas uh, foisted upon populations from the outside that, you know, this is what you're going to believe in now. If I were sitting in China, uh, I would say, well, you know, your integration or our integration into the Western system of international rights is oppressive. Uh, this is the constant dispute between the United States and China uh, that's been going on for every administration since George H.W. Uh, Bush watched the Tiananmen Square protest. Well, what happened to individual rights? Well, they don't really exist, in the, at least in the Tiananmen Square protest, uh, and we sort of rode over them roughshod. But the United States is saying, well, in order to become a full-fledged member, you have to you know, show your promotion of these. Now, I'm not saying that the United States suggesting to China individual rights constitutes oppression. Uh, perhaps it might be the opposite. But... As you have the development in the latter half of the 20th century into the 21st of sort of this global system, uh, where the for the first time we have you know people from opposite sides of the world in constant contact, uh, there are going to be a few customs and traditions and laws that really need to be smoothed over uh, in order for everybody to be on the same page. This is one of the questions I constantly put to my international relations students. Okay, so you have a country with whom you disagree. Say, for example, Turkey. Uh, just this is, this is a country that we've had a strategic alliance with since the Cold War. Uh, it's still a member of NATO. Uh, but the current regime there is not particularly friendly uh, to minority rights. They're not particularly friendly to sort of Western secularism. Uh, and the same thing could be said with um, Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. uh, that... These are places where you know, political dissident, uh, dissent is not treated kindly. How do you get along with them? Uh, can you have a strategic partnership? Can you have a lasting alliance or even friendship with these regimes that have just fundamentally different values? That's going to be a huge question as we get further into the 21st century. Now, does it constitute oppression for one side of that partnership to dictate uh, the internal domestic politics of the other? M maybe. I don't know. That's going to be up to them. Uh, and this is where I get to that you know, sort of touchy-feely dimension of oppression. Oppression is not oppression unless it's felt to be so, unless somebody is keeping me from doing something that I really wanted to do. Nobody's really keeping me from getting a Lamborghini, unless I say it's my employer keeping me from getting a Lamborghini. 
But I don't think that that can be reasonably called oppression. I don't think it would be just for me to march into uh, the dean or the president's office and demand with, you know, my pocket knife or whatever that uh, they pay me enough so I can afford a Lamborghini. This is not really just revolution. And it's not really a legitimate protest against the political order. Now, this is getting this your second question. What do I uh, take to be the criteria for a just revolution? Uh, I don't know that these things can be laid out for all time. Um, I know in the last episode you were talking about uh, John Locke's sort of standards for the appeal onto heaven. Um, I don't want to necessarily endorse that, but he has much clearer guidelines. I don't know that one can really set up sort of these benchmarks where if you meet, meet, uh, if you meet threshold A, threshold B, threshold C, and threshold D, then yeah, whatever you do after that is just, even if it's, you know, cutting off people's heads and, you know, uh, terror in the streets. I don't know that I can quite set out those benchmarks, but he would be a good place to turn for those standards. Well, that makes sense. Uh, I think it's one of the things that has bothered people for for years about the uh, I know the 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 traditional medieval and early modern just war theory seems like it tries to lay out those sort of benchmarks that are helpful in one sense, but they're also problematic in another because how do you ever it, it's always a little bit subjective about whether or not the benchmark has been achieved and how do we deal with even the movement towards one of those benchmarks in a particular context? And that just makes this a whole tangled, complicated mess. Oh, absolutely. And this gets into one of the oldest debates in political science between Aristotle and you know Thomas Aquinas versus like the Kantian, the, the rule-oriented guys. Like, okay, well, if you do this and this, then you're just. But Aristotle is always going to insist on prudence. Mm-hmm. At some point, you have to use judgment in order to be able to determine whether or not the particulars fit into the general uh, categories, but also how you're evaluating the particulars, and if there are certain exceptions to be had. So I don't think prudence can be discarded. I know that's that very not satisfying for your audience who is looking for the, exactly these rules, but uh, you, you can't escape political prudence. Well, I think it may actually give a a helpful criteria or at least a helpful suggestion to affirmative uh, and and really give negative uh, uh, something to target where affirmative, from what you're saying, it sounds like affirmative really needs to be incredibly obvious and clear to the judge and make the judge perceive the violation of justice in whatever oppression they're looking at. And then so when the judge perceives that, the judge will then buy into the necessity and the justice of this revolution. Whereas it seems like Neg would then be trying to say, trying to really attack what affirmative is laying out as obvious and clear and really try to prevent the judge from uh, what you've been calling the touchy-feely aspect of oppression. Try to prevent the judge from really feeling that sense of oppression. Yeah, always. Uh, You have to, the negative should always make sure that that benchmark for justice is always just past the horizon. Never quite meet. And, you know, I'm going to drop a name here that I think that all of your negative, uh, your listeners who are going to go on the negative should go and look up. And that's Thomas Hobbes, who in many ways is John Locke's teacher. But he has, he has a strategy that you're going to want to keep in mind as you pursue this. And he says that 
Well, prior to the founding of the political community, prior to the founding of the state, which he says this comes to be in the form of the Leviathan, the tyrannical monarch, uh, so on and so forth. Prior to that, in the state of nature, there is no such thing as justice. And this is going to be where he comes into conflict with people like Aristotle, and especially he has his uh, sights set on Aquinas. There's no such thing as justice outside of the political community. Therefore, and this is the huge change from Hobbes to Locke, Hobbes says there's no such thing as a right to revolution. Because what external standard of justice are you going to appeal to outside of the state? There is none. So this is why one cannot revolt against the state. One must simply take it. He says the only real thing that exists prior to the state, outside of the state, is one's right to life. And he's not talking about the abortion debate. He's simply talking about, you know, you and I sitting here, we're going to do whatever we want to to protect our lives. And he says that this is still valid up until uh, the moment that the executioner, the judge, sentences me to die. And so as I'm walking up onto the gallows to get my head chopped off, Hobbes says, I still have the right to resist. Now, it's not going to work very well, and justice has nothing to do with it, but this is what I'm naturally going to do one way or the other, whether he permits it or not. So by denying this idea of justice outside of the state, that justice can exist in sort of this platonic form, this sort of undermines the concept of revolution. So I, I encourage your, your readers to take a look into that. Oh, that's a that's a great thought. I, I'm not nearly as familiar with Hobbes. So I, I've read his section on the, the Leviathan, and I love the, the image that usually gets printed as the, the cover plate of that book where all the people make up the body of the Leviathan. It's one of my favorite pictures of the uh, the body politic, literally the body politic. But it's it's uh, that's that's fascinating. So there is no if there's no justice outside the state, we cannot justly revolt against the very system within which we find justice. Yeah, uh, and that cover that you bring up is incredibly fascinating. I spent multiple class periods, entire class periods, three-hour class periods in grad school, talking about just that cover, because the Leviathan is so interested in the symbolism that he is going on there. One thing I want to point your readers towards is the subtitle, in which he says something, and I'm going to misquote this. He talks about the causes of government, and he's clearly imitating for Aristotle's four causes, the efficient, the formal, and the material cause. But he conveniently leaves out, he lists three causes. He conveniently uh-huh. leaves out the final cause, the telos, uh-huh. that thing which transcends, the thing towards which something moves. It's oriented, uh-huh. the end, its purpose. Yeah, which is the start of his attack on this external justice, because there can be none of these external standards. Everything is relative within the state, within the regime. And so therefore, you don't have the right to this violent revolt. In fact, that's the very thing that the state is constituted to oppose is violence. So the moment that you pick up your gun or your sword and whatever, go after your neighbor or the policeman, you are an enemy of the state. You don't have this appeal onto heaven. There's no heaven to appeal to, according to Hobbes. Uh, The moment that you try to do so, you are the domestic disturbance and we will put you down. Oh my. 
That does sound like a great art, great source for the neg. Is is there anybody that comes to mind that kind of parallels Hobbes, for, but for the affirmative side, that you would say this is the guy you have to read for the affirmative case? Well, in some ways, I mean, John Locke provides the repair to that with his appeal onto heaven. Now, a lot of contemporary scholarship suggests that he's not entirely serious about it. He just he's uh, simpatico with Hobbes but simply trying to make it a little bit more palatable. Walk us through that. You said it was called The Appeal to Heaven? Yes. Walk us walk okay. us through the pieces of that. I'm not sure I'm familiar with that one. Now, this is something I haven't read in years. Essentially, Locke is trying to suggest, okay, well, Hobbes may have went a little bit far because he doesn't leave you any recourse. If you are under the most tyrannical government, you have absolutely no recourse. You just have to hope. Like the entire point of the Leviathan is how much can one man tyrannize you? It's better to have one tyrant than everybody be his own tyrant. Locke says, okay, well, that uh, doesn't really help me to sleep at night. Uh, <laughs> if he were a Soviet citizen, you know, you would understand that. So he sets up this appeal onto heaven as something that he doesn't really fully explain to mine. She just sort of suggests, well, you know, it's going to happen. At this point, uh, you know, Hobbes is writing the entire, uh, sorry, uh, John Locke is writing the treatises uh, as he's taking refuge from a revolution back at home. He's in the Netherlands at the time, to my knowledge. Oh, okay. Um, So he sort of has to suggest that, you know, there is sort of this right to revolution, but it's sort of, it's, it's fuzzy. Uh, and that's why he invokes God, and it's an appeal onto heaven in that God will be the ultimate arbiter. If, with our guns and our swords, we are able to overthrow the tyrant, then we have made a successful appeal. We had a good case. This is trial by combat 101. Which sounds an awful lot like the Chinese concept of the emperor as the son of heaven, that... In, in Chinese history, at least, the one of the big problems of China, of doing Chinese history is that each each dynasty considered itself to be the, the, the emperor was the divine son of heaven. Well, whenever there was a change in dynasty and the new ruler would be on the throne, the first thing he would do would be to either burn all the historical records of the previous son of heaven or rewrite those records to uh, help highlight how horrible the previous son of heaven was and how beneficent the new one happens to be. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Part of justice is you know writing the right history uh, so you can cast yourself in the best light. The other name that comes to mind in terms of where your uh, listeners want to turn is the guy that uh, Hobbes had in his crosshairs, which is Thomas Aquinas, uh, who sets up, and this, this is a part of the Summa uh, called the Treatise on Laws. And he sets up four types of laws. There's uh, the eternal, natural, divine law, and human law. And for him, human law is stuff like it's an elaboration of the natural law. It's why do we drive on the right-hand side of the road? Are the Brits, are, are they enemies of the natural law because they do it the opposite way? Are they fundamentally immoral for driving on the other side of the road? Well, no. Is there a moral concept of driving on right versus left? Well, no. That, I don't think that, you know, if you check the Ten Commandments or if you check sort of uh, anywhere else in the Bible, you're not going to see anything on this. This is not a natural law either. It's sort of an elaboration made to make sure that things function properly. 
Uh, there's nothing inherently moral or immoral about you know, which side of the road one drives on so long as everybody's on the same page. In that way, it's an elaboration of the natural law. It adds on to the natural law just to help you know, everybody get along. Now, where I uh, draw your listeners' attention to the qualifications he sets on uh, human law. He says that if, on the other hand, you have a human law that uh, violates the natural law, if you're uh, you're asked to murder your father or something like that by a law, you know, the House of Representatives and the Senate goes out tomorrow and says, you know, we have too many old people. Everybody go shoot your dad. Uh, I, I would hope that, you know, we want to vote for those people. But the point is that Aquinas would say human law that violates the natural law like that is actually not a law, is no law at all, because it's, com- it's fundamentally unjust. It asks people to do what they ought not do. And so in that sense, this is getting back to the resolution that if you are asking one or if your human law, if your regime that's based on human laws is in violation of the natural principles, then one has a duty to subvert that law. Or if you want a much simpler roundabout, I mean, just go through the Declaration of Independence and they sort of make the same case. I think that's interesting that uh, for, for our listeners who've been following the show for a while, they may be familiar with this, but I did, I did an interview with a, uh, a Protestant natural law professor, a guy named Michael Watson at Calvin College a few weeks back. And I was really, most of the natural law thinkers that I've interacted with have been Catholics. So I was really curious to find here from a Protestant, how, how can you be Protestant and appreciate the natural law? And Dr. Watson certainly argues yes. We, got, we had a great conversation about the, the possibilities of using natural law in LDs. I love that you, you brought us back to that. It reminds me of um, two notes where I think the Bible affirms, and I'm sure Aquinas has read this. He, he seems to have read everything that ever existed by the 13th century, so I'm sure he's familiar with these examples. But it reminds me of uh, there's a place in the book of Acts very early in the, uh, in the church's history where... Uh, before they're all scattered to the nations, they're, the apostles are teaching in, uh, it's called Solomon's Porch in the temple. And they're, they're telling people, Jesus rose from the dead, he is Messiah. Well, a couple of the apostles get hauled before the, uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And they get told by the religious leaders of the day, the ones who had authority in religious matters, stop talking about this Jesus. Don't heal people in Jesus' name. Stop it. And they look right back at him without a blink and say, if you ask me to violate God's law, who should I listen to, man's law or God's law? And the Apostle Paul picks up the same note in Romans 13, because he has, uh, in verses 1 through 7, he gives a an incredibly strong defense of government. I, it's why I don't think, I think it's really... I think it's incredibly problematic to be Christian and libertarian. I think it's impossible to be Christian and anarchist based on Romans 13. But he says that all authority is given by God. The one who wields the sword, who has that authority, has it from God. So if you revolt against the king, you're revolting against God's literal divine representative of justice on earth. Now, that's the very traditional, very statist reading of Romans 13. If you go a little bit past where Paul talks about that, he gives the rationale. And it's exactly what you're drawing from Aquinas, that God sets this up. And that then gives the, he gives Christians one out. 
at the point where the state demands that they violate the commands of God, that is the place for Christian civil disobedience. And it's the one of the initial foundations for the idea of martyrdom. But when Christians are commanded to deny Christ, well, Paul does not give, he doesn't leave room to say, pick up your bayonet and kill the Roman or, or kill the British or anything like that. He does say, do not deny Jesus. Uh, die for your faith. And uh, maybe that's too as part of the appeal to heaven. Look to heaven for your ultimate reward. So I think there's a there, there's firm ground in the tradition for the argument that you're making. I, I think it's a, it could be a really helpful one for debaters. Uh, absolutely. You and I went round and round about uh, that Romans 13 passage back in the day, and I fondly recall those you know long, late-night debates. That's it. Um, well, we should do a quick yeah. shout-out to Nathan Sarver and Will Cooney both, because they were also part of those, those discussions oh, yeah. once upon a time. And I encourage your listeners to also, you know, Follow that same line of thought. This is not necessarily just a Christian argument. If you look at, uh, I had my students read uh, Sophocles' Antigone, mm-hmm. uh, which very much gets to the same point about martyrdom. Of course, this is in a pre-Christian era. And Antigone's in a situation where she must choose between the human law and the divine law. And, well, you know, I, I, it's probably safe to give spoilers. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's been out in theaters <laughs> for you know, a couple of years at this point. Yeah, 2,500, uh, give or take yeah, a century. But yes, divine law and suffers at the hands of human law. It seems that this resolution is asking you to figure out something else towards which to appeal, whether that's the Christian heaven or what have you. Uh, it could even be Rawlsian justice, you know, earthly justice. You have to figure out something outside of the regime by which you can leverage the regime. Because in the world of Hobbes, there's nothing outside of the state. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a state of nature and it's terrible. Uh, don't ever go there. It's no travel agent will ever because they have some sort of conscience. Uh, What's the line? It's uh, the state of nature is uh, nasty, brutish, and short in, in Hobbes' imagination. Solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. There we go. Five bad things. It's a line drilled into my memory because one of my professors always used to say, you know, I had a lot of dates in college like that. Solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. So I'll never forget that line. <laughs> There we go. Well, Nathan, this has been a, uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation tonight. Yes, and I. Uh, this, and I, I hope our listeners have enjoyed listening in. And uh, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't just point out that uh, I remain convinced that you and I can have these sort of conversations in part because we had such excellent training from Hillsdale College. So uh, one quick shout out to Hillsdale. I think I've managed to work into a lot of these episodes, but there it is. <laughs> Well, absolutely. I completely agree with you. And thank you very much for having me on. It's been oh, yeah. Well, as we as we wrap up, I'd, I'd love to. Uh, uh, one of the things I really enjoy doing with this podcast is talking to people who were debaters at some point. We've done uh, actually uh, we did an interview with a former Hillsdale debater from from the uh, early 90s, a guy named Paul Swick, who's uh, he was on the he was on the debate team when they made the shift from policy to parley. <laughs> so. <laughs> Going back a day or two, but um, I really enjoyed asking him this kind of question. I want to. I want to ask you this: Is debate worth it? All the agony, all the work, the late nights, the weekends, cutting cards, running cases, countless hours. Is debate worth it? No. Thanks. Have a good night. Okay. Um. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a beast that gives you out what you put in. 
so one can dabble in debate and not really make many sacrifices, and you know, one doesn't get much in return. And I'm not saying that debate is a just god in every way, but in a, to a certain degree, it demands some sacrifice. It demands some organization. It demands the weekends, the long nights of research, the research weekends. You know, your friend gives you a call. Hey, let's go to the movies. No, no, I can't because I, I have to look up, you know, this thing about India and Pakistan. <laughs> You're going to have those moments. There, there will be sacrifices, but the sacrifices are in the service of something. It's not just so that you know everything about the conflict between India and Pakistan, which I do, by the by. But it sort of inculcates a certain way of thinking, a certain way of approaching certain subjects. Uh, you have knowledge on particulars. But more so, it allows you to interrogate certain propositions, such as we've been doing for the past hour or however long it's been. I'm sure to your listeners, it kind of feels like an eternity. Uh, but the point is that it gets you into a certain way of thinking. And this way of thinking has absolutely been critical for me in my graduate studies and in my teaching, that it's not just you read a passage of whatever you're working on, like Thomas Hobbes, or, you know, read a passage from the newspaper or what have you, uh, and just sort of accept what it has to say, well, you ask yourself the questions. Well, why should I believe this to be true? Is it not true? Well, what if there are other consequences to it besides uh, what's stated? Why should I believe it to be true? It's a way of thinking that by long practice and long nights of research, you force yourself into habit of these interrogations. And this habit absolutely helps the life of the mind. Uh, and you don't have to go down the academic route from here. Uh, you know, God help you if you do, uh, please don't. But if you do, <laughs> it's certainly helpful for obvious reasons. But even if you just want to be an informed citizen, an informed person, able to have important conversations about important things. I think it really helps you to be able to talk to people. Uh, you know, when you're listening to those debates that are going at speed, it might not seem that it helps you talk to people when you're going at 300 words a minute, but it helps you to be able to understand other people, be able to understand what's going on around you. So that's sort of my long answer. Y yes, yes, that's a, the short answer is yes, it's worth it. Oh, and you, you did much more of this than I did. And I, I have one semester of competition. You had at least eight. I don't know if you did. Did you do any debate in high school? No. Okay. So you were, you came at it pretty fresh in college. Yes. Uh, you mentioned the at speed a moment ago. Last summer I was at a uh, high school national debate tournament, the, uh, the Coolidge cup in Vermont. And I was on a bus with a bunch of debaters. We had a 30 minute ride from the, uh, the town of notch Vermont to the hotel. And suddenly these debaters, one person pulled out a card and they started doing speed drills. I'd never actually seen this. They had they they read the card and they were and I I raised my hand and said, hey, I, I know I'm a coach, but I want to take a try at it because I never did the speed stuff. I still to this day I despise debate at speed. I think it misses half the point of debate. But be that as it may, uh, it was really fun to try and just get those words out at speed. I maxed out at about 170 words a minute. There were some kids there. They were fresh. They were sharp. They were speaking at somewhere between four and 500 words a minute. It blew me away. I could not understand them, but I knew that there were words there. <laughs> it was kind of crazy.
I heard those debates in high school and, you know, when I was thinking about, oh, do I want to join this team? And that's what convinced me that I did not want to join the team, um, which more is a loss for me. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I get it. I get it. It's a, it's a different type of game. It is. Um, it's a specialist game. It's an advanced game that's played between advanced practitioners. And I, for one, prefer debate to be accessible and open to a lot more people than the, the relatively few who can listen and think and speak at that kind of a speed. But, man, I'm sure that was really something when uh, both uh, Mr. Lincoln and Mr. Douglas pulled out their binders and you know just started going at 500 words a minute in the original LD debates. Those were, whew. That's exactly how they did the 1840s. Well, <laughs> uh Nathan, most of our listeners are, uh, I think, high school debaters. What what advice would you offer high school debaters today? That's a really good question. And I have one answer, and nobody's going to take me seriously. But I'm going to say it anyways. Because it sounds very much like a platitude, but have fun. Yes, I know everybody and their brother is going to tell you, oh, have fun with whatever you're doing. And I, I don't mean that as just a mindless platitude. Uh, I was sort of a mediocre debater on my best days. I think one of the things that really kept me back was that I didn't have fun with it. I didn't treat it like a game. I treated it like a must-win competition. I took myself way too seriously. But that's not what debate should be about. It should be about trying out new arguments, You know, going with your gut instinct, being inventive, have fun. And if you lose the round, who cares? It's a debate round. Oh, you don't get a little shiny plastic trophy. Oh, no, it's the end of the world. And I know at that age, in high school, I took myself even more seriously. And this is, you know, a natural thing. It's human nature for high schoolers to, you know, uh, treat every single thing as if it's the end of the world, uh, life and death. But seriously, just kick back, have fun, try out some new things. And if you lose, lose, be proud of it. It's completely fine. At the end of the day, nobody's going to care. It's great to win. It makes you feel great. But, you know, nobody's going to keep track of your win-loss record. I don't remember how many debate rounds I won. Uh, in fact, you know, by the next tournament, I didn't remember. Uh, I had other things on my mind. But, you know, just have fun with it. Uh, try out some new things. Give it a shot. Don't take it too seriously. That's my advice. That's that's fantastic advice. I've I've been at even I saw this in college debate and I see it's even now in high school debate where there are folks that really uh, debate is debate becomes their life and it 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 uh, I, you used the phrase earlier uh, debate as a god. There's a, there's a very real sense in which that's true and debate can become an all consuming god and debaters can become uh, it, it's very easy to become sort of a a self important priest of the god of debate and mm -hmm. I. I enjoy teaching debate and I enjoy debating with students in part because I, I always frame debate as a game and we are playing a game. We are debating about objective things. We're not debating about the most important things because there are some things I think that are too important, honestly, to debate. There are some axiomatic principles that hopefully all of us believe and we don't always toss them up in the air and say, hmm, let me look at this from 15 different angles and lay out 16 impacts really fast. But there are plenty of things that we do and we play that game. I love your advice about uh, really uh, trying out new, ar new arguments, new ideas and see what works and just try it out for the fun of it. Uh, that's, that's, that's a great perspective. 
Well, uh, soon to be Dr. Orlando. Uh, is there anywhere our listeners can find you online? Are you on Twitter? Are you on Facebook? Do you have your own website or a book coming out soon? Anything, if our listeners want to follow your work, where, where would they do that? I mean, they can come take my classes. <laughs> um, stay tuned. Stay tuned. This is uh, something that uh, all of us academics eventually have to get into. Um, I've got a couple things on my mind for the end of the semester that, you know, as we start to move into the summer, I'll be working on that. But uh, for now, we'll, we'll just leave it at stay tuned. Excellent. Well, if uh, listeners want to get in touch with you, they certainly could enroll at St. Vincent College and, and sign up for your classes and uh, probably let, love to have you. Let, let the administration know that you're the best, uh, best fellow in international politics that they've got on staff there, I'm sure. I'm also the only one, but uh, therefore the best. That's it. That's it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to another episode of What's the Res? My name is Josh Herring, and today my guest has been soon-to-be Dr. Nathan Orlando. If you want to get in touch with us here at What's the Res, you can email us at whatstherez at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at whatstherez underscore. If you like what you've heard today, head over to iTunes. Leave us a five-star review. That's the best way for other people to find us. We wish all the debaters who made it to Nationals the best of luck. Join us next time for more What's the Res. And until then, work hard, speak well, and seek truth. <laughs>